Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. This year is the 60th anniversary of the Greensboro lunch counter sit-ins, and that was a critical moment in the civil rights movement in the United States. On February 1st of 1964, freshmen from Agricultural and Technical College of North Carolina, which is now North Carolina A&T State University, sat down at a segregated lunch counter at the F.W. Woolworth's Five and Dime in Greensboro, North Carolina. And on that first day, it was just the four of them, but soon hundreds of people were joining the demonstrations in downtown Greensboro, and sit-ins were also taking place in dozens of other cities around the United States. This is frequently described as the beginning of a movement, but really the Greensboro Four catalyzed something that had been building in the years leading up to that first day of sitting in. So that is the story we're going to tell today. For a brief recap on where the civil rights movement was in 1960, after the end of the Reconstruction period that followed the U.S. Civil War, many parts of the United States established systems of racial segregation. This is often discussed in the context of separating the black population from the white population. But in parts of the country that were home to other racial and ethnic minorities, segregation targeted those populations as well. The U.S. Supreme Court found that this was legal as long as the separate facilities were equal in its decision in Plessy v. Ferguson in 1896. We did an episode on Plessy v. Ferguson on February 16, 2015. Yeah, if you have been listening to our show for a long time, Uh, None of this is news to you, or if you've studied the civil rights movement in other contexts, but we know not everyone has. So Uh, people had been fighting for equal rights for racial and ethnic minorities before Plessy versus Ferguson, and they continued to do so afterward. But it wasn't until the 1940s and 50s that some major changes really started to happen in that regard. President Harry Truman issued Executive Order 9981, which desegregated the U.S. Armed Services in 1948. That's come up in a lot of our previous episodes that touch on the U.S. military during World War II. In 1954, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that public school segregation was unconstitutional in Brown v. Board of Education of Topeka. Then, the Montgomery bus boycott lasted from December 5, 1955 to December 20, 1956. The boycott led to another Supreme Court decision in which the court upheld a ruling that Alabama's state law requiring segregated buses was also unconstitutional. We have two-part episodes on Brown versus Board and on the Montgomery bus boycott in our archive as well. On September 9th of 1957, President Dwight D. Eisenhower signed the Civil Rights Act of 1957 into law. The final version of this law was a lot weaker than the bill that was originally proposed, and South Carolina Senator Strom Thurmond filibustered for more than 24 hours to try to prevent it from being passed at all. Even so, this was the first federal civil rights legislation passed since the Reconstruction era, and it established a commission on civil rights as well as some basic voter rights protections. There was, of course, a lot more to the civil rights movement than just that, but these were some of the key moments that we're just using to set the stage. And after 1957, many civil rights leaders in the U.S. felt like the movement had started to stall. The NAACP, which had been established in 1909, was still working primarily through legal strategies. The Congress of Racial Equality, or CORE, had been established in 1942 and was still focused on nonviolent activism. 
and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, or SCLC, grew out of the Montgomery bus boycott and was formally established in 1957. It helped coordinate and organize among more local civil rights organizations across the U.S., also with nonviolent activism. But while these and other organizations, along with individual people, were still hard at work, it just seemed like the movement wasn't seeing the visible activity and forward steps that it had in previous years. The Supreme Court's decision in Brown v. Board had also led to a massive backlash in which many communities took extreme steps to try to avoid integrating their schools. We talked about that in those earlier episodes as well. Civil rights advocates had faced intimidation, harassment, and violence throughout this movement, and that was part of that backlash to Brown versus Board as well. And this brings us to Greensboro, North Carolina, a city first established in 1808. North Carolina in general considered itself to be more racially progressive than many of its neighbors, and this was especially true in Greensboro. Overall, the white majority thought that race relations in the city were pretty good, especially compared to places in the Deep South that had become notorious for racism and racist violence. Greensboro's kind of relative progressiveness and its attitude on this was thanks in part to a large Quaker community. As we've talked about on the show before, the Religious Society of Friends became an active part of the movement for the abolition of slavery, and it was also part of the civil rights movement after that point. That attitude was also connected to a large population of students and academics thanks to the number of colleges and universities in the city. The Society of Friends had established New Garden Boarding School, which was the state's first co-educational boarding school in 1837. The boarding school was turned into a liberal arts college a few years later and is Guilford College today. As Greensboro grew, its educational institutions also came to include colleges and universities for Black students. This included Bennett College, which was a private college established for Black women in 1873. What's now North Carolina A&T State University was established in Raleigh as A&M College for the Colored Race in 1891. It moved to Greensboro in 1893. By the start of the 20th century, Greensboro was home to five colleges and universities, three for white students and two for Black students. Charlotte Hawkins Brown also established the Palmer Memorial Institute, which was a prep school for black students, and that was outside the city proper, established in 1902. So all of this was contributing to that overall sense that Greensboro was sort of a a nice place to be and forward-thinking, and things were pretty good there. Uh, And that idea that Greensboro was pretty forward-thinking on race continued into the civil rights movement. On May 18th of 1954, the day after the U.S. Supreme Court issued its decision in Brown v. Board of Education, the Greensboro School Board publicly announced its intention to comply with the ruling. This made it the first city in the Southeast to make that kind of public announcement. But actually following through with that announcement was another story. It took three years before any Black students were enrolled at a previously all-white school in Greensboro. And for many years after that, school integration was really a token effort. It took well over a decade before Greensboro schools were really integrated. And as has been the case in so many parts of the U.S., patterns of segregation have gradually returned since then. So by 1960, even though Greensboro's white leadership thought of itself as a fair and just city where race relations were overall positive, school desegregation was barely getting started, and a lot of other public facilities were still segregated as well. 
the golf courses had been integrated thanks to a demonstration that started on December 7, 1955, when six black men were arrested while playing a round of golf at Greensboro's whites-only Gillespie Golf Course. But the swimming pools were still segregated in spite of demonstrations led by Edward Edmonds, who taught sociology at Bennett College. Also still segregated were restaurants and the more casual lunch counters found in variety stores and drugstores. That's what students in Greensboro were trying to change in 1960. More about that after a sponsor break. like the ones that were carried out in Greensboro in 1960 are a form of direct action. This is a term that was coined in the early 20th century to describe actions like boycotts or strikes, which are meant to help the demonstrators reach their goals directly in the most efficient and effective way possible. Although direct action isn't always nonviolent, the direct action employed during a lot of the civil rights movement generally was. Sit-ins as a form of nonviolent direct action date back earlier than the civil rights movement, though. One of its precursors is the sit-down strike. We have talked about a number of strikes that were part of the labor movement in the U.S. and Europe in the 19th and 20th centuries. And for many of these, striking workers picketed, demonstrated, held rallies, and tried to block replacement workers from getting into their workplace from outside. A sit-down strike was different. Striking workers took over their workplaces and sat down inside, sometimes right at their workstations. One of the first large-scale sit-down strikes was the Flint sit-down strike, which started on December 30, 1936, but it followed other smaller strikes at other factories. General Motors workers in Flint, Michigan, went on strike for recognition of the United Auto Workers as their collective bargaining agent, And for better pay, grievance procedures, other workplace rights and protections, the same types of things that we've generally talked about in these previous episodes. Striking workers stopped working, locked themselves in the building, and sat down at their stations. And this effectively shut down the plant. The striking workers weren't working, and replacement workers couldn't get in to work either. Within a few years, civil rights activists had adopted a similar strategy in the fight for racial equality. A restaurant could not make any money if all of its seats were being occupied by Black customers who the restaurant was refusing to serve, or supporters of other races who were taking up space but refusing to place their orders unless the restaurant served those Black customers who were waiting. Of course, picketing, rallies, and other demonstrations, as well as legal actions and other tactics, could be part of this kind of demonstration as well. There was at least one sit-in-style demonstration that happened earlier than this to protest segregation in another context. But when it comes to food service specifically, the first documented sit-ins protesting segregation happened in 1943, with multiple protests taking place that year. Polly Murray, who was a law student at Howard University, organized a stool sitting by Howard students to protest segregation at the Little Palace Cafeteria in Washington, D.C., Along with her other work in civil rights activism, Murray went on to become the first African-American woman to become an Episcopal priest. Students at Howard also sat in at the United Cigar Store in Washington, D.C. in 1943, after Ruth Powell, Marion Musgrave, and Juanita Merrow experienced discrimination there. These three sophomores had ordered hot chocolate, and at first they were refused service. The staff at United Cigar Store called the police. The police say they didn't have any grounds to remove these three women, so they were served their hot chocolate. But when the bill came, they had been charged 25 cents each rather than the actual price of 10 cents. 
When they refused to pay that extra amount, they were arrested. Howard's student chapter of the NAACP organized a protest of the United Cigar Company and of D.C. area restaurants in the hope of ending their discriminatory practices and of getting civil rights legislation passed. In this case, the students at Howard ended their demonstrations after a lot of deliberation at the request of Dr. Mordecai W. Johnson, who was president of the university. This started out as more of a temporary request for the students to suspend their protest while the university figured out what its policies were regarding this kind of off-campus demonstration. But the students eventually decided to stop the protest entirely because of the possibility of the university losing its federal funding. Since Howard is in Washington, D.C., there were concerns that legislators might feel like the students' behavior was antagonizing them and cut off the school's budget. By that point, though, the students had gotten some of the restaurants in Washington, D.C. to stop their segregation policies, but they hadn't reached the goal of trying to get civil rights legislation passed. Activists in Chicago held sit-ins in 1943 as well. Jack Spratt's Coffee House in Chicago had a reputation for treating Black customers with rudeness and hostility or denying them service outright. This included refusing service to James Farmer in 1942. Farmer helped organize interracial groups, each with at least one Black member, to take up seats at the diner. They'd all refuse to leave until their Black member was served. The Committee of Racial Equality, which became the Congress of Racial Equality, grew out of this experience, with Farmer as one of its founders. These are just examples from that first documented year of sit-ins to protest segregation, and sit-ins continued to be organized in multiple cities throughout the 1940s and 50s. In the three years leading up to the Greensboro sit-ins of 1960, there were organized sit-ins in at least 15 cities. Many of them were organized by CORE, either alone or working in conjunction with the NAACP, although other community and church groups organized sit-ins during those three years as well. This included sit-ins in North Carolina. On June 23, 1957, the Reverend Douglas Moore and six others were arrested at the Royal Ice Cream Parlor in Durham, North Carolina, for sitting in the whites-only section. Just as sit-ins were not a brand new phenomenon in 1960, A&T also had a long history of student political involvement and demonstrations by that point, something that is, of course, true of a lot of other college campuses. Students had demonstrated, gone on strike, they had taken other actions in response to everything from administrative policies that they wanted to change to the quality of the food in the cafeteria. In 1955, A&T students disrupted a speech by then-North Carolina Governor Luther Hodges, who was in favor of voluntary segregation and whose language in that speech was belittling and racist. These demonstrations weren't limited to things related to campus life. In 1937, students from A&T boycotted Greensboro's movie theaters over the practice of deleting scenes with Black characters from films. The theaters also required Black patrons to enter through a separate door and to sit in a separate section. Based on the history of political activism at the school, its being about an hour away from Durham, and the overall interconnectedness of civil rights activists in the 1950s, it's likely that students at A&T had heard about the demonstrations in Durham and elsewhere. The Greensboro sit-ins started with four freshmen who became known as the Greensboro Four. These were Franklin McCain, Joseph McNeil, David Richmond, and Ezell Blair Jr., who later became known as Jabrell Kazan. Some of them had known one another when they were in high school at Dudley High School in Greensboro before they started college. 
In college, the four of them had become very close friends. They were all politically active and aware, and they tended to have conversations in the dorm late into the night about topics like civil rights and racial justice. But the inspiration they cited for their sit-in was the treatment Joseph McNeil received while traveling back to campus by bus after the winter break in 1960. McNeil had been born in North Carolina, but had moved to New York with his family before returning to Greensboro to attend A&T. He traveled between New York and Greensboro by bus. On these trips, he saw firsthand how his treatment changed based on how far south he had traveled. On this trip back to the school in 1960, he was denied service at a restaurant at a Greyhound bus station. And from there, he decided to change things. He convinced his three classmates that they should sit in at the F.W. Woolworth counter in downtown Greensboro. They set a date for doing this of February 1st. Although Black customers were allowed to shop at the Woolworth store, they could only buy food there at a stand-up snack bar, not at the lunch counter, which had actual seating. In later years, all four men talked about being terrified of what could happen to them if they did this. All of them vividly remembered the 1955 lynching of Emmett Till, who had been brutally beaten and murdered after a white woman said that he had whistled at and physically accosted her. She later admitted that this was false, and we talked more about that in detail in our 2017 episode titled The Motherhood of Mamie Till Mobley. Apart from the inherent horror of this murder, the Greensboro Four were about the same age as Emmett had been when he was killed, so they were absolutely aware that they were putting themselves at risk in doing this, as was the case with the people who took on all of those earlier sit-ins. On the afternoon of Monday, February 1st, they met up at Blueford Library on the ANT campus, wearing their Sunday best. McCain was in his ROTC uniform because he hadn't had time to change. They did not expect that they would be coming back to campus that day. As McCain described it later on, quote, "'If I were lucky, I would go to jail for a long, long time.'" If I were not quite so lucky, I would come back to my campus, but in a pine box. This was also really personal for the four of them. Also in McCain's words from later in his life, quote, manhood and dignity, that's what we were trying to get. We didn't go down to Woolworth to change the world. It was about a 15-minute walk from the campus to Woolworth, and once they got there, they each bought a few small necessities in the store, and they kept their receipts so that they could prove that they were customers. Then they took seats at the lunch counter. The staff refused to serve them and told them to leave, but they stayed put, showing their receipts and asking why they could spend their money in the store, but not at the lunch counter. In their accounts, a black food service worker also told them to leave, saying that they shouldn't cause trouble. In later years, the men also told slightly different versions of their encounter with an older white woman that first day, that she either said that she was proud of them for what they were doing and asked why it had taken so long, Or some versions suggest that she was disappointed in them because it had taken so long. Finally, the store manager Clarence Harris, known as Curly, decided the best course of action was to close the store early. When the four young men left, they said they would be back the next day. When they got back to campus, they formed a student executive committee for justice to try to keep themselves and their classmates focused and to make sure anyone who joined the sit-in understood their standards for dress, behavior, and nonviolence. They were to be neatly and nicely dressed, with men in coats and ties and women in dresses, stockings, and heels. They were to be gracious and polite, including not talking back if they were insulted or sworn at. We will have more on this after another quick sponsor break. When they planned their 
their sit-in at the Woolworth lunch counter, the Greensboro Four had the support of Ralph Johns, who was a white business owner who opposed segregation. Johns contacted the local press while they were sitting in. Photographer Jack Mobes of the Greensboro Record took a photo of the four young men on their way out of the store. The newspaper started covering the sit-in right away. More reporters were on hand on February 2nd, and the student demonstrators had grown from those first four people to a total of about 20. On Wednesday the 3rd, more than 60 students were sitting at the lunch counter. Crowds started forming before the store opened, with black students and white counter-protesters each trying to fill all of the seats at the lunch counter. White opponents to the sit-in included members of the Ku Klux Klan. Um, There is a a documentary on this called February 1, and they tell stories about this kind of rush to try to get all the seats. Uh, And in some cases, like, the the white people who sat down were trying to keep the demonstrators from sitting down. But then in other cases, it was more like people would sit down and uh, the, you know, the staff would come over to take their order, and they would say, I think he was here before me, actually and sort of claim the space in that way. So there was a lot going on uh, in in terms of this rush for seats at the lunch counter. Women were also involved in this protest from its earliest days. Like A&T, Bennett College had a long and established history of civil rights activism among its student body, including being part of the earlier Greensboro demonstrations that we talked about before the break. Women from Bennett, who were nicknamed Bennett Bells, are referenced in news reports from the fourth day of the demonstration, but they were probably there earlier. Bennett students were also a big part of the sit-in's ongoing planning, and hundreds of them sat in at the lunch counters over the course of the sit-ins. News reports also mention white women from Women's College, which is now UNCG, who joined on the third day. On Thursday, February 4th, more than 300 people made their way to downtown Greensboro, and the sit-in spread from the Woolworth lunch counter to the counter at the nearby S.H. Crest store. The sit-ins became national news, and people started organizing sit-ins at lunch counters in other cities. Nationally televised news coverage was one of the reasons that the Greensboro sit-in sparked a more national movement when those earlier sit-ins that we talked about really hadn't. But it was also because by 1960, most major cities were home to church leaders and civil rights activists who were trained in nonviolence and direct action. So when word started to spread of what was happening in Greensboro, people in other cities were already ready to go. People started picketing and boycotting at northern Woolworth locations that weren't segregating their lunch counters as well to try to get the whole chain to change its policies. On Friday, February 5th, the Greensboro sit-in saw its first arrests, with three white men arrested for intimidation after setting a black man's coat on fire at the counter. Then on February 6th, both Woolworth and Cress closed due to a bomb threat. The student demonstrators agreed to a two-week truce while the stores tried to work out a desegregation plan. As that was happening, sit-ins started in Winston-Salem, about 30 miles from Greensboro, on February 8th. On February 13th, students and civil rights leaders from Nashville Christian Leadership Conference started sitting in at restaurants in Nashville, Tennessee. This was actually something they had already been working on. Just a few days before the Greensboro sit-in started, Black students had visited lunch counters in Nashville to confirm that they would not be served there as part of their planning of a series of sit-ins. 
More than 120 students from American Baptist College, Fisk University, and Tennessee A&I State University sat in at three Nashville stores, all of which wound up closing early on that first day. One of the student demonstrators in Nashville was John Lewis, who was a student at American Baptist College at the time. On February 16th, Martin Luther King Jr. spoke at White Rock Baptist Church in Durham, North Carolina. Afterwards, some of the Greensboro demonstrators were able to meet him, and he expressed his support for what they were doing. King also credited the Greensboro sit-ins with reinvigorating the movement. People, mostly students, kept organizing sit-ins in more and more cities, most of them in the South. We are not at all touching on all of them. These are just some examples. On February 24th and 25th, students in Orangeburg, South Carolina, sat in at the Crest lunch counter. On February 27th, the number of student demonstrators in Nashville, Tennessee, swelled to 400. They were attacked by white counter-protesters that day. The demonstrating students were beaten and burned with cigarettes, and 81 of them were arrested and charged with disorderly conduct, even though they were not the instigators and had not fought back. The arrested students' bail was set at $100, but they opted to remain in jail even after that amount was lowered. That actually was a a strategy in a lot of this movement, to choose jail rather than bail. One of the organizers of the Nashville sit-ins was the Reverend James Lawson, who was pursuing graduate studies at the Divinity School of Vanderbilt University. Vanderbilt's Divinity program was integrated. Lawson had been incarcerated as a conscientious objector during the Korean War and had studied Gandhi's principles of nonviolent activism in India. The media in Nashville framed him as an outside agitator who was advocating lawlessness. On March 3rd, the Board of Trust at Vanderbilt met to discuss the situation, and they ultimately offered him the choice of withdrawing from the Divinity School or being expelled. And he chose expulsion, which led to widespread student demonstrations at Vanderbilt and the resignations of nearly all the Divinity School faculty. On March 15th, about 1,000 students in Orangeburg, South Carolina, held a march to protest segregation in Orangeburg and to support the sit-ins that were happening in other parts of South Carolina. On March 28th, seven students from Southern University sat in at the Crest Counter in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. All of them were arrested, and their bail was set at $1,500 each. Civil rights leader Reverend T.J. Jemison headed the effort to raise funds for them. The next day, there were sit-ins at Steinman's Drugstore in Baton Rouge, as well as the Greyhound Station, and students from Southern University walked out of class to march to the Capitol. Sixteen students were arrested and suspended from school. Many were convicted, with the U.S. Supreme Court overturning those convictions later on. On April 1st, sit-ins and other demonstrations resumed in Greensboro. That two-week suspension and demonstrations had dragged on. It had become clear that these negotiations to actually integrate the lunch counters were going nowhere. Demonstrators also started asking people to boycott the downtown stores. And even people who didn't support integration had started avoiding the whole area because of the sit-ins and the other demonstrations. On that same day, students from Burke High School sat in at the Crest lunch counter in Charleston, South Carolina. This demonstration lasted for only a day, as all of the students who participated were arrested. NAACP branch president J. Arthur Brown paid their bail of $10 each. Also in April, Ella Baker, who was active in the NAACP and had helped organize the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, held a meeting for student activists at Shaw University in Raleigh. 
The result of that meeting was the establishment of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC. SNCC has its own history beyond this sit-in movement. Parts of that history are contentious, but it became a major organization in the civil rights movement in the 1960s, especially when it came to young people's activism. On April 19th in Nashville, the home of the student demonstrator's defense lawyer was bombed, causing extensive damage to it and the surrounding buildings, but thankfully not causing any injuries or deaths. In response, students led a silent march of about 3,000 people. The day after the march, Martin Luther King Jr. spoke at Fisk University, and that address was also delayed because of the bomb threats. On May 10th, nearly all the stores that students had targeted in Nashville started integrating their lunch counters. Back in Greensboro, Crest had closed its lunch counter entirely for a while to try to avoid this whole situation. And when it reopened, it roped off the counter to try to allow staff to control who could or couldn't get in. When Black students walked past the rope and sat down anyway, police arrested more than 40 people, including three of the Greensboro Four. At this point, the end of the academic year was approaching, and in some cities, store owners and local authorities were hoping that things would kind of just blow over or at least calm down when students went home for the summer. In Greensboro, Curly Harris had gotten a memo from Woolworth's regional headquarters to integrate the lunch counter, but had left it up to him as to when to do it, and so he decided to do it on July 25th, when school was no longer in session. He chose four employees, Geneva Tisdale, Susie Morrison, Anatha Jones, and Charles Best, to be the first Black customers served at the lunch counter. He asked them to bring a change of clothes with them to work that day so they would be in street clothes when they ate. He also advised them that if they did not want their picture in the paper, they should eat as quickly as they could. Those are the names that I have found for the four employees, but there are some sources that you'll find that say it was three employees rather than four When college students returned in the fall, some did go to the store to test out whether uh, integration really was happening at the lunch counter, but it did not become like the go-to place for students at Bennett or A&T to eat. By the end of 1960, there had been sit-ins in at least 100 cities, and at least 70,000 people had participated. A year after that initial February 1st protest, at least 140 cities had desegregated their lunch counters, both in response to sit-ins in those cities and also out of fear that they could be targeted next. This wasn't at all the end of the sit-in movement. The sit-ins are often credited with reviving the civil rights movement, as we've mentioned earlier, and they're also credited with training a new generation of civil rights activists who participated in them. Moving beyond 1960, students and others started turning their focus to things like segregated movie theaters, restaurants, and other facilities. Those demonstrations were met with similar waves of counter-demonstrations, arrests, and violence. This included wade-ins in Biloxi, Mississippi, which started in 1959 and then recurred several times through 1963, although it was another four years after that before a federal appeals court ruled that the public beaches had to desegregate. Back at the top of the show, we mentioned school desegregation and bus desegregation. In those cases, the U.S. Supreme Court had ruled that racial segregation in public schools and state laws requiring bus segregation were unconstitutional. But the Supreme Court did not make a similar ruling about privately owned businesses that are also open to the public, such as movie theaters, stores, and lunch counters. Between 1961 and 1964, waves of appeals made their way to the U.S. Supreme Court as students fought their convictions for trespassing, disturbing the peace, and similar charges in conjunction with their involvements in the sit-in movement. 
For the most part, the Supreme Court found in favor of the students in these cases and overturned their convictions. But the court generally did so on pretty narrow grounds. The decisions cited things like procedural issues or, in some cases, local or state non-discrimination laws that had been passed since the students were first convicted. The Supreme Court really did not answer the broader constitutional question in these rulings. However, in 1964, President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which was legislation that President John F. Kennedy had advocated before his assassination in 1963. This act outlawed discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. It also required equal access to public places and employment, regardless of race, among other protections. Of course, uh, this did not fix racism or discrimination, but it was the nation's first broad civil rights law since the Reconstruction era, offering more protections than the Civil Rights Act of 1957 had. Regarding the Greensboro Four, after they graduated from A&T, all of them found it difficult to get work in Greensboro because of their involvement in the sit-ins. All of them, except for David Richmond, ultimately left the city. Richmond spent a few years living in western North Carolina before going back to Greensboro to take care of his aging parents. Even then, when years had passed, he struggled to find work, and he faced ongoing issues with his physical and mental health, as well as alcohol abuse, which the people around him attributed to the way he had been treated for his civil rights work. He died on December 7th of 1990 at the age of 49. Franklin McCain died on January 9th of 2014 at the age of 73. As of when we're recording this, Joseph McNeil and Jabrell Kazan, who was known during the sit-ins as Ezell Blair Jr., are still living and are close friends. The Greensboro Woolworth store closed in 1993. At that point, the Smithsonian acquired a length of the lunch counter with four stools, which is in the National Museum of American History. Also in 1993, an organization called Sit-In Movement Incorporated was established to buy the Woolworth building and convert it into a museum. Today, that is the International Civil Rights Center and Museum. On February 2nd of 2002, a statue of the Greensboro Four was unveiled in front of A&T State University's Dudley Building. It's modeled after the photo that was taken of the four men as they left Woolworth on that first day of the sit-ins. Its inscription reads, quote, These four A&T freshmen envisioned and carried out the lunch counter sit-in of February 1st, 1960 in downtown Greensboro. Their courageous act against social injustice inspired similar progress across the nation and is remembered as a defining moment in the struggle for civil rights. Do you have a little bit of listener mail for us? I do. Um, It is actually a listener Facebook comment uh, from Alice that is about our recent episode on Murasaki Shikibu and the tale of Genji. And Alice says, I'm a professional Japanese-to-English translator, so it was fun to hear an episode that touched on translation. Han-era Japanese is definitely difficult to translate and difficult for today's Japanese person to read. The question of what the subject or object of a specific Genji sentence is supposed to be is something I've seen my Japanese colleagues argue about pretty heatedly. But I should note that this what's-the-subject-slash-object conundrum didn't end with flowery classical Japanese, although a Japanese writer today will include subjects in sentences more often than Murasaki Shikibu did, 
the subject will still be left out of a good half of sentences in both spoken and written Japanese today. You're, quote, just supposed to know. So if you get a bunch of translators in a room to analyze a book or manga written in 2020, you'll still inevitably get to see them argue over who or what some sentence or other is really talking about. Thanks for covering Lady Murasaki. Thanks for that note, Alice. That's pretty cool. I did not realize that that was still uh, as present in Japanese today. Um, which is funny because uh, I'm not trying to throw my husband under the bus, uh, but he speaks Japanese and has lived in Japan and is a person that I will ask various Japanese language things of from time to time. And when we were talking about that episode, I don't think uh, that particular detail about Japanese came up. It also reminds me a bit of uh, a lot of authors that I follow have talked about trying to Um, write their work in a way that it works really well from the page and also works really well as an audiobook. Yeah. And a lot of times that involves leaving off the attribution of like he said and she said in dialogue, which as a reader, you can pretty much keep up with if you're paying attention, but can also (laughs) lead to some similar (laughs) moments of like, who said that sentence? Right. And the, I mean, I, I, I know very little about, uh, Japanese language, but my understanding too is that because of the syntax of it is so different, sometimes it's just tricky. There's no one-to-one to translate yeah. to English language. Like there's really a lot of nuance and interpretation that the interpreter has to do. Yeah. So yeah. So thank you again. Uh, if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at iHeartRadio.com. We're also all over social media at Mist in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. You can also subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and anywhere else you like to get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 